I don't have, if you have your notes from last week, we didn't finish up, uh, and I'm not sure what is left in your notes there. Uh, that There's a few things in there, so I see that. But we got about a page and a half or two pages uh, from last week, and then we'll get into tonight's notes. And then we got. I'll, I'll let you know later, but we have a surprise for you. I'm not even going to tell you. i just tell you this. You've got a surprise for you next week, okay? So I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. And we were. We, if you find the passage there where we're talking about Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 13, and we're talking about uh, verse 32 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The only one, God the Father knows, God, and, and we know now that the Son knows, the Holy Spirit knows, because the three in one, they, they're, they're three in one, they know what each other, because they are the same, the three in one. So when, when Christ was here, we knew he laid apart those things. He did not know when he was here, but since he has ascended and gone back to the Father, we read that in the first part of Revelation, that, that the, the Father gave Christ, he gave these things to him, then he gave these things to an angel, the angel comes and he's giving it to, to John. He's revealing this to John. So when we think about, and listen, even as I'm studying, I'm reading commentaries different writers and different things. And it was, it was interesting to me when I read an author who talks about John being the, the author, that John made the decision to do this. Why did John list these churches? Folks, that's wrong. John didn't select those churches. John wrote under inspiration, which means the Holy Spirit, and in this case, the angel is revealing to him, and, and, and we understand, too, the Holy Spirit is still guiding in that. And as John is putting pen to paper, the Holy Spirit of God is breathing to him, speaking to him, and telling him what to write. This is from the mind of God. It is not from the mind of John. Okay? Now, God uses those authors' personalities, their, their histories, their experiences, all of that, and you see that is incorporated. You really think about Paul's writings. Paul, we know he liked athletics, he likes this, and he uses sports references in there at times. So see, it's okay if I do that, all right? It's biblical <laughs> to talk about the bulldogs. It's okay. So, um, but we were at this place where we're talking about Christ's return is imminent, but it's not immediate. And, and the disciples, when Christ ascended, they were looking for his return. They didn't know if he was coming back later that day or next week. They, they fully expected that he was going to come back in their, in their time. And I think every, every generation since has looked, and that's the right way. We are to be looking for his return. Because, but the scriptures make it real clear to us here. We will not know. We cannot know. So what are we to do? We are to watch regularly. I said this last week. We're to watch regularly and pray expectantly, knowing that Jesus Christ may come at any time, at any moment he could come. And I'm ready for his return. Amen? Amen. I'm ready. So uh, the scriptures here don't tell us to watch for the Antichrist or to watch for the tribulation events. We are to watch for Christ's coming. We're to look for Christ as believers when he blows that horn, when he shouts, he gives that shout, and then we are going to go and meet him in the air. Praise God. I'm ready. Paul, and I was sharing, so Paul expected, look here in these verses, Paul expected to be alive when the Lord returned. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, 
then we who are alive and remain. That doesn't sound like he's, he's saying, hey, and then you guys in the future, when the Lord comes back, that are alive and remain. He says, then we, and he could be, that could be an all-inclusive statement that Paul was making. I don't think so. I think Paul was saying here, I, I, when, when he comes, we who are alive and remain, me included, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He's very clearly expressing what will happen at the rapture. And Paul expected that he would be a part of that. Uh, New, New Testament Christians were all uh, taught to continually watch for Christ's coming. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10 And to wait uh, for His Son from heaven. That's what they were taught. We're to wait for His Son from heaven. He's coming back. They were taught that. We're taught that. And we need to be on the lookout for Him. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? So our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait. We eagerly wait for His return. We anticipate that. And that waiting, you know, it, that waiting is, a, is, a, is an active word. It's not... It's not kicking back in the recliner and snoozing till he shows up. This is the end, the waiting and the anticipation that we have when, you know, when our kids are coming home. You know, when, when Jordan is, is coming back from school and I'm on the Life 360 watching where she's at and making sure the car's still moving and all that kind of stuff. And then when you, she's getting close, you know, and you're looking out the window, you're looking. You're, now, the difference is... I've got Life 360 on Jordan. I know when she's going to arrive. I don't know with the Lord, but we're to be looking the same way. We're to be looking out the window, expecting any moment is the Lord coming back. And we should always be ready. We should be anticipating that and praying that way. So what we, what we do know, here's what we do know about the Lord's return. And what we do know is that no one can know when he will return. Okay, somebody wants to ask you and you want to, they want to know, give, give me one solid fact you can tell me about the Lord's return. I'll tell you this, no one knows. No one on this earth knows when he will return. So his first coming was, was not just his birth in Bethlehem. Okay, when we're talking about his first coming, it, but it was the entirety of his incarnation. It was his, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his ministry and death and resurrection. All of that, all of that, the resurrection through the ascension, all of that was part of his first coming. Now, once Christ raptures the church, then there is, there is a a clear-cut schedule in the Bible of events that will follow. But until that point, I mean, that really is the that's, the, that's the starting gun for all of this. There's a lot of things that are leading up to it and a lot of things, but when the, the rapture is, that's the starting gun of those events of the tribulation leading to the Lord's second coming, to His return. And, uh, you know, people all through the, we've had it in our lifetime, people trying to tell us a date. Right? I mean, remember somebody sometime, y'all remember, right? There have been several in my lifetime who've said it's going to happen on this date. The Lord's coming on this date. It's going to happen right here. And as far, as far back as the year 1000, 
uh, many jump to the conclusion that at the close of the age, Christ would return. They're mixing up stuff. Thousand years. Oh, he's got to come back at the thousand years. He didn't. Martin Luther thought the Pope was the Antichrist. So he thought it was, that was the time. That was the time then. Listen, we hear that today. There are those who believe the Pope's the Antichrist today. It may be. It may be. I mean, so uh, there was a man named Farmer Miller in New York State. He, he saw some stars fall. He read in the book of Daniel, decided that a day meant a year, figured out that the Lord must come in October of 1843. He got others to follow him, and they all got ready, and Christ didn't come. So he went back and he refigured. He said, oh, I messed up. And he, he was, I was a year too early, so he's going to come in October of 1844. And we know how that turned out, okay? So he didn't come back. You know, and even in recent years, there have been many who've claimed to know what the Bible clearly tells us no one can know. That's one of those, I mean, that there's a no-brainer. When someone tells you they've got it figured out. I always get a little skeptical when I hear people start to tell me things that they found in Scripture that no one else has found in 2,000 years. It's always a little, little concerning that no one else ever saw that in 2,000 years uh, but, but they've seen that. And I've had, I've, now I'm not trying to be ugly, but I've had some people who were, um, they were uh, manic depressive. That, and, and when they were in that manic stage, they would freak out and go into scripture reading for two or three. I mean, I knew somebody read, they just got in the Bible for two or three days. They were on the floor. They had stuff everywhere. And her husband called me and said, hey, you got to come over here. You got to help me. And I walked in and it was like, there was stuff everywhere. And took about 10, 15 minutes of listening. I knew, I knew we had, we had it, was, it was more than an issue I was going to be able to deal with. It was, it was really a, a bad situation. But, but those things can happen. And uh, be careful with that. When people tell you they know things that if I ever tell you the Lord's coming back at this time, y'all just go get the coat and put me in it, okay? I've lost my mind. So Christ's return is always imminent but not predictable. So the time is a secret known only to God. Now we get to verse 3 here, and I love this. There's a comparison I'm going to look at here. In verse 3 it says, Blessed. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And I'll finish that in a moment, but blessed, blessed. There's a blessing that comes with reading this prophecy, with reading this book, the Revelation. And, 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 and so it says there's a blessing for he who reads it. Now I've encouraged you to begin reading through that. And if you read through it, I mean, if you, if you just, if you read the chapter we're in every day and then you're working your way through it and you do that while we're studying this, by the time we finish this, as much of an expert as you can be in the Revelation, you will be. Because you will have read, the, the, read it again and again and again. I have a friend that, I, I, some of you have heard me say this, that there was, uh, when someone says, uh, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. There was a friend that used to go to church with us, and he said, no, you're not. None of us are good. No, not one. And so now I don't say good anymore. I, I try to say, I try to remember to say, oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? And, but I always think of him, and he's a good brother. He just, he, just uh, he, he's, he tries to be funny, and that's one of the things that he always does with people, because none are good, no, not one, and I get that. But he, uh, he's an encourager, and to this day, we've been gone from there five years he still will call me. He'll text me. He sent me a text Monday morning. He called me Tuesday, 
and we had a conversation. And uh, one of the things, now he's read through the Bible 120, I think he's on his 126th time reading through the scriptures. He just reads through it. He'll finish it and start it again. He says, I get up in the morning, I read. I, I, when I take my lunch break, I sit down and read. When I come home at night, I don't watch TV, I read. And, and so he'll go through it multiple times a year. And it's amazing. But he calls me and he's all excited. And he says, I have all this time, I've been reading the Bible. And he found, this, he found a thing in the Old Testament. He said, I've never seen that. Something was said here, and I'm reading through the, the gods. I'm reading through all the genealogy. And then I find something 19 generations later, and he said, it blew my mind. I've never seen that before. So, folks, what I'm telling you is you read something once, and you get a little something. You may read it 20 times, and you come back on 21st time. You read a verse, and something you go, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. And then you read it and you go, you read something, you go, wait, 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 wait. Over in verse, in chapter 18, it says, and you start to put those things together. But it takes that multiple reading. So what I'm saying is I'm encouraging you to get into the, the book of Revelation as we're doing this study and make, a, make it a part of your day to read through the scriptures. And, uh, and do that again and again and again as we study through this. You're going to gain a lot of knowledge on this book. But blessed, so blessed is he who reads it. So if you read it, there's a blessing that comes with that. Those who hear it. So as we read it in here, as, we, as, we, as, you, as you hear it read, there's a blessing. And that word there for blessed, it's supremely blessed. It means fortunate. It means well off. You know, that to me sounds, there's, there's, there's some physical blessing to that. There, that's what that that. that implies right there. There is, a, there is a blessing that comes to that. Now, reading the Word of God is always a blessing, period. If we read it, you're going to be blessed. You're gaining insight from it. You're in closer fellowship with the Lord. If we say we're walking right with God and we're not in the Word, I didn't open the book in three weeks. We're not walking right with God. If we read it, if we read it and then don't apply what we've heard, then we're in sin because he who knows to do right and doesn't do it, it's sin. So, I mean, we can be dancing all around this thing and not be doing the right things. But reading the book of Revelation, we're going to be blessed just to read the word. Think of Psalm 1.1. It says, blessed is the man who walks. Now, that word is a little different. That word blessed there, uh, it, it's the Phil, uh, what's their name? The Duck Dynasty guy. Phil. Phil Roberts or whatever, you know, he, he, he's the one saying happy, happy, happy. I think it's Phil that said that. What's that? Robertson. So but Phil always says happy, happy, happy. Sometimes if you've seen on birthday cards, sometimes I'll write happy, happy birthday, you know, happy, happy, happy. But um, that word means, that's what that means. That blessed there in Psalm 1-1 is happy, happy is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So there's joy in life. There's, there's this joy and fulfilling in life, this blessing that comes just from reading the Word. But there's a, it, there seems to be, according to this, a different type of blessing that comes from reading the prophecy in this book. So, like I said, there's always a blessing when we read the Word of God. Uh, but, but this says, you know, it's profitable for us. There is a, there is a blessing, fortunate, well-off, is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. But the, the verse continues, folks. It's not just who reads it and hears it, but the verse continues and said, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, the keep means this, to watch over or to observe attentively. That's what that means, to keep. 
So it means that we are we observing the things that we're learning here. We're, we're, we're being observant in life. So the book of Revelation is po- occupied for the most part with events that have little bearing on our lives. Amen? So we understand that, right? Because we're going we're gonna to get into what I think is right there at the beginning of verse 4. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 4. We're going to read through, study through these churches, seven churches. And we're going to get to chapter 4, and we're going to see John called up into heaven. Now, I don't know if that is the rapture in itself right there that John is being a part of, that he's being called up with the raptures. He sees that he's being, he, he, he's being able to experience that as they're being raptured, or if the rapture has occurred right there and John is just being called up. Either way, I believe that is the, in this timeline. When we're starting there in chapter 4, boom, it's the rapture. The church is gone. We don't see the church in Revelation again on earth from that point, okay? So we know the rapture is in that. And uh, so it's, it's uh, so these, as we're reading this book, these later books, the majority of this book doesn't have anything to do with our lives because we're going to be gone. But there is importance, it's important that we do read this. So uh, most of the, 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 the events in this book are going to take place after the church has been removed from the scene. But there are two abiding values for us in this book. So as we study it, we can keep in view the person of Christ and the purposes of God. Okay, so we talk about, you know, when I talk about the, the book, so much of it doesn't apply to it because that tribulation period, it, that seven year period, which is a big part of this book. We're not we're, we're off. We're off having a meal. We're off being going through at the judgment seat of Christ. We're having the marriage supper of the lamb. We're up there seven years. And then at, at that point when the Lord says, let's go and, and we're going to we're going to mount up with him and come back. We're going to come back. That's when, now all that part, that part of it, we're back involved. We're on the scene. We'll see those things. We'll be a part of those things. Um, So that's going to be cool. So it's to keep in view the person of Christ. So as we read this, you keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ and then the purposes of God. So this book will teach us to adore the person and accept those purposes and thus make its impact on our lives. So that's that's conclusion from last week. Now, we're going to look, hopefully... Verses, uh, and I know I ain't going to get through it. We'll try. Um, verses 4 through 8, and we'll pick up right there. So I'm gonna, I don't have notes on this, so just listen. You can write and make some notes. This really didn't outline. This is not a part that outlined well. Uh, but verse 4, John, to the seven churches. So now we, we've, already, we've already seen that we've, he, we come to verse 4, and John, it's what him saying here is John, John. To the seven churches which are in Asia. So John is addressing this from himself to those seven churches which are in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace. And it's interesting that we start the book of Revelation, which is gonna, we're going to see in this period of time, in this book, the most tumultuous time in all of human history. It's going to be the most violent, the most... Uh, There are no hyperboles in this. I mean, we would use the hyperboles, but it all applies. It's not hyperbole because it's fact. It'll be the the greatest battles, the greatest death tolls, the greatest tragedies, the greatest... All of that. There's there's never been a time in history like they're going to experience in that seven-year period of tribulation. And so the Lord through John greets us with this, this thing of grace to you. And peace. Grace. Yeah. 
So his grace, and what he's saying is, look, his grace is available, and with his grace comes peace. When we have God's grace in our life, then we have peace. And, and he's saying that there's, you know, listen, if there is no grace, there is no peace. If you don't have, have God's grace in your life, you don't have peace. You don't have real peace. You'll never have real peace short of the grace of God. And what I'm talking about with the grace of God is God's grace been poured in your life for salvation. And short of that, there will be no peace. But he's saying here, grace to you and peace. And it's available. So for him, who, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now this here is God the Father. And we're seeing here in this salutation, this greeting right here in verse 4. So it's from him who is and who was and who is to come. And that's God the Father. So God lives in the present. He lives in the past. He, he is in the future uh, tenses of time. He is everywhere all the time. Remember, time is a part of his creation. So we have to, you've got to get past this thinking of, of, well, God's moving along with us in time. No, God, God is moving along with us in time, but God is in the past because God is over the time. That's all a part of his created, his created, uh, his created, everything that's created, everything that exists. What we know that exists, it's all God has created it, and time is a part of that. And so he's everywhere all the time. He's over there. He's in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. And Erwin uh, Erwin A. Moon of the Moody Institute of Science, he said, I'm going to read what he said here. He was talking about time and, and, the, and the concept of that. So I want, you to, I want you to hear this. So he says, all of us have looked up on a clear night and seen the sparkling, twinkling stars. But how many of us have realized that we cannot see the stars as they now are? Every time we look, we're looking into the past, seeing them as they were. The nearest naked eye star, uh, Alpha Centauri, is about four light years away. The most distant naked eye object, the Andromeda galaxy, is about a million and a half light years away. This means that the light has been traveling four light years or over a million years to reach us. Now, I don't think what he's saying, and don't get caught up in the million years. We hear that and we freak out, okay? Uh, if it's a million light years away, in concept, that light's been traveling a million years. Well, we know when God created, he created complete. It was history. And, and people go, well, how could that be? Did he create Adam and Eve? As, did, did Adam, with no mother and father, did, did, he, did he start as a single cell, fertilized egg, and grow with no woman there, and then, and then and become a baby, and then 33 years later, he's there in the garden? No. I, I said 33 years. Like, that's how old Adam was. I don't know how Adam was. It's almost like the age of perfection, right? 33 years. That's what I think about. So, but, but what he did is he created Adam, and, and people go, well, well, did Adam have a belly button? That's, a, that, that's really, and I understand that question. I understand where that comes from. I understand where it comes from, but people get caught up in that question right there. Like, is that going to affect whether you believe in Christ or not? Well, I'd want to know if Jesus had a belly button. I mean, if he didn't have a, a, a mother, you know, on earth. Okay, um, just for the record, I think he did. I think God created him as we are. Um, so he, um, but maybe not. It doesn't affect anything if he didn't, right? All right, so don't get caught up in the million years. But he goes on, he says, as a result, we are looking into the past. But this works both ways. If you were on one of the stars, you would, assuming an adequate telescope, see the earth as it was sometime in the past. From the star Sirius, you could see what you are doing nine years ago. Because in a profoundly true scientific sense, you are still doing it. 
Now, this is a weird thought. This is a deep thought. So I'm still, I mean, there's still more. You got you to stay with it. I want you to think about that a minute. All right. So when we see the stars, we're seeing the past. We're not seeing it as it is right now. That's a fact. Our sun, what is it? How long does it take for the light to get here? Nine minutes? Eight, eight minutes? Okay. So from our, we're not seeing the sun as it is right now. When we see the sun, it's what we're seeing from eight minutes ago. Because the light is traveling here. So now, if you're on another planet looking back at Earth, you're looking back into, into the past. And it's going to... So there are things that we've done that they're going to see later. They would see theoretically later that we've already done. Okay? That's our past, but it would be their, their, their future or present, viewing it from there. So yes, everything... Now, this is scientific, okay? This is a science guy. So yes, everything you have ever done, you are still doing. The ghost of your past haunts the universe. But remember, God is omnipresent. This means that for God, every sin you have ever committed, everything you have ever done, you are still doing and will continue to do forever. Apart from God's forgiveness, only the omnipotent, eternal God who controls all the factors of time, space, and matter could ever remove sin. It's an interesting, interesting thought right there that I, I'd not thought of before. And as I was reading that, I thought of something else. What's the other? Oh, you know, the, the, I've heard this, and I, did, I haven't researched the science on it, but I heard that sound never, it never is gone. So the words I've spoke, while the waves, you hear them here, and, and they don't, you know, you'll get to outside, they may not be able to hear it, but the waves are there. And they continue forever. They don't cease they don't stop at any point. So every word we've ever spoken is still out there. Have you ever, have you ever thought about judgment? People that are going to stand in judgment and, and everything they've ever said or done, all of it's going to be there. And I always had a picture. If you've ever read Chick Tracks, oh, wow, it was like you're at the movie theater, the drive-in, and there's the big screen, and they're standing there, and their life is being reviewed. There's a track, actually, we probably got it out there, says, this was your life. It's a powerful track, but it gives that idea. And, and so the, the, the reality of that is, scientifically, everything we say, it's, it's out there forever. But nothing's forgotten. And we think, you know, we, we, we think more and more. I'm, I can imagine 100 years ago, people would have had a harder time even imagining getting their mind wrapped around and I still can't get my mind wrapped around how, how God's all-knowing mind. But as we progress through, through technology and stuff, and some of the stuff we see going on today that man has accomplished and the, the amount of memory and stuff, it blows your mind all that's being... I mean, if you think Big Brother ain't recording, probably every cell phone in here is being tapped right now and recorded somewhere to use against us later, you know. Um, Preacher, you're crazy. Please turn me off. Um, but, but God's mind is so, so big and so amazing. I mean, there's nothing. There's no thought that we have. If, if he knows the number of hair on our head, for every person that's ever lived, you think about 8 billion people, whatever it is today, close to 8 billion on earth today, and he knows every hair on your body. They're numbered. And it doesn't, and it doesn't, what'd you say? It keeps falling out? You? It keeps falling out and growing in. So and he knows all the time where it's at. Exactly right. 
It, it, so, and the thing is, it, it's, his knowledge is, it, it doesn't diminish his hard drive one bit when another child's born and, oh, I got to keep up with them now. How do I do all this? No, it's not one bit decreased. It's just like when he pours out his, his grace on you, it doesn't one bit tap the, the level of grace he has to offer. I mean, he's, it's just an endless supply. He is just, he's infinite in every, every way. So we're speaking here then for him who is and who was and is to come. It's, that's God the Father. Then you have the part here, the second part of this verse that says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, again, you read different people. I was talking with Pastor Aaron today. I said, it's fascinating. And I've told y'all this already. So as I come into this, if I, if I called up 10 preachers today with some of the verses that we're in, and I said, tell me your take on this, I'd get 10 different answers. I read, I read different commentaries, and you'll see in a bit, maybe you'll see in a bit, um, the, the different take on, on the churches. And we'll, we'll talk, hopefully get that. I'm going to shut up and move on. I'm going to shut up and, and talk other things. Okay. So, but th- there's a lot of different takes on the seven spirits and, this, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne or before his throne. And there are some who speculate that this is, this is the seven angels. For the churches, and, and, it, and it doesn't make sense that it would be that. Where, why would an angel ever have place with God the Father and God the Son? Why would that ever be? So what we're looking at here, these seven spirits, this is the Holy Spirit of God. And you think about it, when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in, in your life, Miss Linda, and he's also at the same time working in Brent's life, and he's, again, he's no less, he's not, not diminished in any bit by his effort in your life and Brent's life and Henry's life and John's life all at the same time. So it, it's the seven. It may be representative of the seven uh, of the churches there, but this is clearly the Trinity is being represented here and being revealed to us. So it's God the Father, and right here we see uh, the seven spirits who are before the throne. This is the Holy Spirit of God right here. And then we get to uh, verse 5, and it says, from and from Jesus Christ. And that's the third person of the Trinity. Now, if Jesus wasn't listed there, we might, we might think, okay, the, the, the seven spirits, maybe that's not. But it's very clear. This is the Trinity being represented right here. So there's, those seven spirits have to be the Holy Spirit of God. So, um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, the Lord was a witness, and he talked about being a witness, and there's things he witnessed to. He witnessed to the name of God, and in fact, he affirmed the names of God from the Old Testament, but he, he actually introduced a new name. Well, do you all know what the new name was in the, in the New Testament? Father. Father. They, they wouldn't have called God Father. And, and Jesus introduced that. He was a witness to the name of God as Father. He witnessed to the nature of sin. There are 15 words that had been developed in the Old Testament to depict the various phases of sin. John Phillips says this. He says, In Christ, the full nature of sin was displayed as they plowed his back and crowned him with thorns. Sin hung him up on cruel nails amid the sneers and just... Uh, jests of mankind. Sin broke his body and broke his heart. Sin wrung from his lips the orphan cry upon the cross. Sin was revealed in all its naked, unmasked horror when Jesus came. 
So, so Jesus was a witness to the nature of sin. He witnessed to the need for, for, for righteousness. You know, the law dealt with that. And the, what, the, what the, law all could, the law could do is show us how we weren't righteous. And it really dealt with the deed, the, the, the do's and the do nots. And Jesus really dealt in the form of righteousness with the very desire of the heart. And we think of the, the Beatitudes, the, the, the perfect... The, the, the perfection of that, the, the, the ideal of that, of how we should live our lives. And we find that there in the Beatitudes. But he, he witnessed to the need for righteousness. He witnessed to the nearness of judgment. Jesus spoke about uh, more about hell than he did about heaven. He witnessed to the news of salvation. He made it clear that it was needed and it was available. Jesus witnessed to that. So Jesus was the witness. So Jesus, the faithful witness... And then he's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the first. Now, now listen, has anybody ever read that, the firstborn from the dead, and said, wait, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't the first to rise from the dead? There were, there were several others that rose from the dead. Old Testament resurrection, there were some New Testament. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So there were multiple resurrections from the dead. But Jesus is the first from the dead. He's the first who rose from the dead who never died again. I mean, Lazarus, Lazarus had to be going, oh, man, why did you bring me back, Lord? They're sitting at the, I can just see them sitting at the table and Lazarus going, Lord, why, why, why did you bring me back? I got to go through this again now. So um, he was the first, but that word firstborn, it, it's the word pro, protokos, and it implies priority or, and sovereignty, not or, but priority and sovereignty. He is, he is firstborn from the dead. He is first. He is first in everything. Christ is first. It is speaking of his priority in, in all things. And the ruler over kings of the earth. The Lord who once came to be born in a barn and to die on a cross is coming back to reign. Coming in pomp and power with banners flying and with heaven's armies at his back. The Lord will reign. Okay, I'm going to save that for next week. All right, I got something there I wanted to do, but I'm going to wait till next week for the sake of time because I want to try to get through this if I can quickly. I want to get to this. Um, all right, to him who loved us. Now, if you read your translation, who's got their Bible open? Anybody got their Bible open? How many, does anybody's translation say to him who loves us? What, what version are you reading? The NIV? Does that say loves? Loves? What's yours? What, what, are you, what version are you reading? Uh, New American Standard. New American Standard. Okay. Because that is the, the actual, the proper, the proper translation there. And there's a lot of translations that say, to him who loved us. New King James say, to him who loved us. And, but it's actually, that's, that's a, that's a pr past tense when he says he loved us. But that word is actually a, a present tense. It's a present going on verse right there. So it is he who loves he who loves us, he loved us then. He loved us when he died on the cross. He loved us when he rose from the dead. He loved when he ascended. He loved all through history and he loves us now. And he will love us tomorrow and he'll love us next week. He loves us to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And now that's past tense. 
So you don't typically mix tenses in, in a verse like that. And, and that's probably some of the, where that translation came through that way. But the, the, the actual translation is that to him who loves us. He loves us. He loved us back then, and he loves us now. That love wasn't just, oh, man, his, he loved us back then, so he did this. Don't really know what's going on today. No, no, he loves us today. He loves us now, and, and he, he washed us. And so, again, that's past tense. Now, he washed us clean, and that, that wash there, the, the, if you go back and look at the original word, it actually gives the idea of washing. But a lot of the commentaries I read that, that really focus on what was being said here, what, it, when you interpret this, it's that he freed us from our sins. That's the whole implication there. This washing was the cleansing. It freed us from our sins. And, and so he, 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 he washed us in his life. He, he broke those chains of bondage. That's what he did. He freed us from our sin and he continually loves us. And he washed us in his own blood. That's the price for our purchased freedom. Folks, if, if, I don't know why we struggle. And listen, we all do at times. We struggle with, with um, not... We're like Laodicea. We're, we're, we're cold. We, we, and we, we have a propensity to move that way. You know what? If you take a, you take a coal... John has, has, camp, he has uh, bonfires, little fires at his house a lot, fellowship. Well, if you pump a coal out of there, if it's in there, it get burning red hot. Right, John? They'll just be, it's amazing to watch. I love to watch the fire and the coals, the embers. But you pull an ember out and you set it aside. It doesn't take very long and it cools off. And that, that can happen to us. So we have to be careful. We stay in the fire. We stay in, in fellowship with him. But we have that propensity to move that way. I don't know why we would ever move that way. I don't know why we would ever cool off if we would just focus on what our salvation costs the Lord. And we talk about it all the time, his shed blood for us. But it becomes, folks, we have to guard against that becoming, uh, becoming routine, apathetic. We become apathetic to that. God came in flesh, lived sinlessly. He didn't deserve any of that. And he shed, I, I've read several who have said they believe that the Lord shed every ounce of his blood, every drop of his blood, he drained for us. His blood was shed for us. That was the price of our salvation, was his death on that cross and his shed blood. And, he, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To, glory, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. So he's coming back the same way he left. He went up in a cloud. He's going to come back in a cloud. It says it's going to come back in that same way. And every, Now, verse 7 here is not speaking of the rapture. Understand that. This is not talking about the rapture here. This is speaking, verse 7 is speaking of his, his second coming. And every eye will see, even they who pierced him. Now, I love that. I love that little ad on there. Because every eye will see, every means every, just like all means all. So we, we get the idea that everybody's going to see this. Everyone, everywhere, for all time will see him. Even those who killed him and those who drove in the nails. You imagine when they see that and they see him come back. Everyone, 
Everyone will see that. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, And I, the, I, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I got six minutes. Yeah, I'll never get through it. I'm move fast here. Six minutes. Um, back to verse 4, because I want to introduce the churches here. And we're going to do a lot more with this. Uh, we got one more week kind of as introduction here in chapter 1, and we'll get into then the churches uh, the following week. But the, 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 this part here where it says, John to the seven churches of Asia. So the seven churches are named in verse 11. They were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we know that there were other churches in the area of Asia Minor, in, in the area of those churches. There was Colossae, there was Miletus, there was Hierapolis. There was uh, Troas and many other places. So those are not, so we got to understand going into that, those were not the only seven churches in the world. They weren't the only seven churches in Asia Minor. There were other churches in the area. So that begs the question then, why those churches? Why seven churches? Why, why wasn't some other church? Why wasn't the church in Jerusalem one of the seven? Why, so it raises a lot of questions. So why seven churches? Why these seven? So there's different ideas, and I'm going to try to share as many of these as I can before we get done. So uh, these seven, one of the ideas is this, is these seven were a kind of a postal district so that, that all the churches were within reach from these seven churches. Now, I think it's a weak argument because it would be hard to get the... the the, the letter to Jerusalem or to other parts of the world where the gospel had already been spread to. But in that area, as the church, as the letters come to those seven churches, like with Laodicea, there might have been churches around that. So that's the, you get the idea. There's seven churches, then there's churches around each of those. So as they get the letters, then they distribute to those around them. Because the idea is this is for everybody and it goes out to everybody. That's one of the ideas. The second, another idea is just... It's, it, it's kind of in line with this, and we see this. So the Lord prefers the number seven. There is no doubt on that. It occurs 54 times in Revelation. There are seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns and eyes, seven thunders, seven angels, seven plagues and bowls. So seven is repeated again and again and again and again and again. If you don't like seven, you ain't going to like reading this book because it's in there a lot. And we're going to see it again and again and again. So throughout Scripture... The number seven has great significance, okay? So for Israel, the Sabbath, circumcision, and worship all hinged around the seventh day. Jericho was marched around for seven days. Naaman was instructed to dip in the Jordan River seven times. There were seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Joseph's time in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar was insane for seven years. There were seven Beatitudes in the New Testament. There were seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. There were seven loaves that fed the multitude. And Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. So seven is all through scripture. It's, it, seven is a, is, is a key number in scripture and it is the key number for the book of the Revelation. So people of John's time considered seven the perfect number. That's what they would have thought. And so the number seven does not stand for perfection though. The number seven stands for completeness. Okay, so there's a difference, okay? Sometimes completeness is perfection, but not always. So therefore, it is suggested that when John wrote to the seven churches, he was in fact writing to the whole church, completeness. So he's writing to the seven, and we'll see more about the, the representation of, of what was in those churches. But the idea is that when he wrote to those seven, he was actually writing to the whole church. And so think of how often John says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? That's thought number two. Now, John Phillips, a little more extensive in this, John Phillips says there were three views that he presents. He said there's the practical view, and, and there are, there are uh, so in the practical view, these are letters dictated by the risen Lord to seven literal churches in Western Asia Minor toward the end of the first century of the Christian era. The letters contain a wealth of local illusion and color. Okay, that's what he says. And it does. If you read those letters, there's a lot of reference to the place where the church was. We know of that, that church. It'd be like, like to, to, right to the letter at the church of Geneva. And we'd hear our sin. And we'd hear our failures. And we'd hear that. But he would encourage us. And that's each of those churches we see that. So primarily, he says in this first view, that primarily the letters are historical and must be studied in that light. So uh, some of the churches needed rebuking, some a word of encouragement, some a stern, blunt warning from the Lord. And in each letter, there is a word to the overcomer. So that's the first view. That's the practical view. He says there's a second view, and it's the perennial view. And he says that the conditions highlighted in the seven churches have always existed in local churches. And you can see that as you read through, as we study those seven churches. We're going to see... We're going to see that those seven churches, you can find churches all around us that are representative of each of those churches today. You can find churches that have that problem, that they're in that place. And so that's the perennial view. So the letters are, are, reverent, are, are relevant to all ages of the church's history. Now, there, ha, there have always been churches needing the messages or the message addressed to Ephesus, for example. And then there, there have always been churches facing persecution as, as, in Smyr, as at Smyrna or the, the inroads of worldliness as at Pergamos or false doctrines as at Thyatira and then lukewarmness as there was there at Laodicea. So that's the idea is that it was a perennial thing. Those were representative of every church that you would have in every age. You would find something that church that, that, that whatever church it is could identify with one of those seven churches. We've got that problem. That's us. That's the perennial view. Then there's the prophetic view. And so many view the letters as prophetic anticipation of the church's history from the close of the apostolic age to the end of the dispensation of grace. And so what that says is... Um, that each church is seen as representing a different phase of, of the church's history. So, and, and we, we can go through that, and I'll show you how some have broken that down. So they would say that, you know, this church represented the, from the apostolic age to here, and this represented here, and this came through the dark ages, and this was this. And then so you get to Laodicea being the church of today. Well, it's easy to look at it, Laodicea and go, well, you've left your first love. I mean, we, we got a lot of problems, right? You know, we, we got the problems of later. We're lukewarm. I just spit you out of my mouth. We, we see those problems today. We see that in the church today. Um, the problem with that is, if the Lord's return was imminent, even then, uh, could he have come back in the third phase of the history that he had presented prophetically was going to be for seven? So there's... You may believe that. You may not believe that. I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I want to present you with the... As, because there are, like I said, there are a lot of different views. I don't tend to take that right there, personally. I probably lean more toward uh, A and B, a combination of that. That those were literal churches in that day. 
We can learn of those churches. We can apply the things from those churches that day to where we're at today. There's principles we draw from that. But we also can find those churches in every age through the, those seven churches that every church through the, through the history of church would see and be able to relate to and learn from and be warned by or whatever. Okay, And then you have guys like John R. Rice who said, this is what he said, that the seven churches, they do not symbolize the various errors in this age before Christ comes. Just very adamant. He didn't even spend any time on it. That's what he, that's what he took on it. And then you get J. Vernon McGee who says, listen to what J. Vernon McGee says. John was directed to write to only seven certain churches because he was giving the complete history of the church and they were representative churches as we shall see. Ask ten guys, get ten answers. Okay, So I'm going to try to give you as much of the information as we go through this and look at the different views. We'll look at how that church history, if it, if it is that, we're going to look at that. If, and, if it's, and we're going to look at the practical of those churches as they were, the historical context of where they were. It's interesting when you read about those churches and then you actually look at the cities where they were and what God was saying, what he's revealing, and what we can relate to the actual church, the city where it was. It's astounding. It's astounding. So there's much to learn in that. All right. I can't believe I got through that. I actually got through my notes. Praise God. So next week we'll be in verse, we'll be in verse 9 through whatever we can get to. Okay. Should I tell them the surprise, Kristen? Should I tell them? All right. This is going to be good. And the, here's the danger for me. It's when you have somebody fill in for you who's better than you are, it's always, it's always bad. It could be bad for me. All right. So Patrick is going to teach next week. All right. And if you've heard Patrick, you're going, all right, that's good. So uh, he'll do a great job and I'm going to be here. I'm not going to be gone. I'm going to be here, but I got to have a little procedure next Wednesday morning and I'm, I might be a little loopy and I don't know how unloopy I'm going to be by come 630. And I don't know what's coming out of my mouth when I ain't on, on uh, medication. So I don't know what I'll be like with, when I am on medication. So I'll be here, and uh, Lord willing, I'll be here. And then, but Patrick's going to teach, so I'm excited about that. And uh, so I've told him verse 9 through whatever he wants to do, and then we'll pick up from there. All right? Any questions?